Good morning, and welcome to episode 730 of Effectively Wild, a daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh of Grantland. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you? Very well, thank you. Anything that you want to talk about? Yeah, a couple of things. Me too. A wee bit of banter. Me too. Mine are all GM-related. Does it surprise you that the Brewers hired headhunters to find David Stearns, their new GM? Huh. I was, I... Just, I was just reading Evan Drellick's response to the hiring for the Houston Chronicle, and he mentioned, I'm sure it had been reported before, that the Brewers, when they announced that they were looking for a replacement for Melvin... They also announced that they had retained executive search firm Corn Ferry, which Wikipedia tells me is the world's largest executive search firm. So it it's weird in the sense that there's like 40 qualified people in the world and they're all famous. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've talked about that before, whether, whether the best qualified potential GMs are all people who are working in baseball or what percentage of them are. Wait, so, hang on. So did did this uh, headhunting firm find Stearns or did I, they just did they engage him and then they ended up? Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it it doesn't say. Uh, it says I that mean, they retained them and then they hired Stearns, so I don't know. We've never been given any indication that a team was looking to hire a GM that wasn't already in baseball. So, it's probably safe to assume that they weren't out looking at, you know, Apple vice presidents. Right. So presumably they found Stearns, but even if they didn't, presumably they were looking in the same places that one might find a Stearns. So it is odd in that sense. It just doesn't seem like you need that much imagination to find a, a GM like Stearns. You just look and go, oh, well, who is there? There's, right. Like I said, there's just there's not that many people. There's a, like, Reading from the journal Sentinel now, the search process that led to the hiring of Stearns took less than six weeks but nevertheless left no stone unturned, according to Adonacio. With the help of search firm Corn Ferry, Adonacio and his staff started with an original list of 44 candidates, which they trimmed down to do interviews. So he was wow. on that 44-person list. 40 turns out to be a pretty good yeah. estimate. So the way that, yeah, that sounds interesting. Now, if it's a matter of hiring a headhunting firm that can... I mean, one of the things that headhunting firms do that is really useful is they gauge the interest of the candidate. And in some industries, I don't, I doubt in this one because I doubt that, for instance, Stearns had any pre-existing relationship with this headhunting firm. Like in a lot of cases, like I, I remember, for instance, that a superintendent I covered left a school district to go work at a headhunting firm. And that headhunting firm kind of worked both ways. Like if you were a superintendent, you would be telling them when you were interested in going somewhere and then they would be, and, and if you were a district, you'd be telling them when you wanted to hire a superintendent. And so having this firm in the middle that was filled with ex-superintendents who knew everybody made it easy to know who was interested. And I assume that's part of what this firm did is they probably reached out to candidates and said, are you interested? And it's like slightly less awkward when a headhunting firm does it than when your rival team's owner calls you and does it. Like that kind of feels like a trick. Uh-huh. Uh, and maybe like you don't really want to say that you've said yes to that request. Whereas if a firm calls you up and says, hey, would you be interested in taking a, another job if it came along? 
they can ask it in a way that maybe uh, massages the details a little bit and you can say it with a little bit less traitor in your voice, right? Mm-hmm. Corn Ferry Vice Chairman Jed Hughes actually sat in on the GM interviews. Okay, so this is, yeah, that's, well, I guess at that point now, so that's interesting because now, now you're talking about basically hiring a, like a management expert to yeah. make sure that you ask the right questions and go through the right process. Corn and Ferry I know that, gave us 40 data points and said to try yeah. to rank them. We came up with a profile of 11 points or skill sets we felt were important. Okay, yeah, that seems reasonable. Okay, no, now I'm going to say totally normal. The 40 yeah, the 44 candidates feels a little weird. You like like I I still don't think you really need help identifying the candidates. You could just read one of the columns that gets written every year saying okay. the 10 guys who are going to get hired to be GM next. Yeah. Uh, but the process, uh, yeah, it seems smart to hire a firm that is really good at making these decisions. I mean, if the whole point of for instance Sabermetrics is using objective analysis to make the right decision and this is a firm that does that as a specialty and that you're probably not as good at doing that i mean how many how many gms does the typical owner hire in his life two mm-hmm. maybe and yeah. uh yeah and i mean i would definitely botch it like if i were <laughs> hiring a gm I, I would probably get hung up on one guy and go hire him and then ask him what he believed in after and so it seems <laughs> Seems smart. Yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, good job. Okay. Yeah. I like it. It it seems frivolous at first because all the finalists were people you and I had heard of. (laughs) Yeah. If we had been asked to list 40 people, we probably would have had those people on our list, like off the top of our heads or after a quick Google search or something. So in that sense, it seems useless and everyone in baseball knows everyone else in baseball, at least by reputation. So you could put together that list pretty easily. So if if there was a subsequent step where it was about designing the interview or figuring out how you choose between 20 people who seem almost interchangeable, mm-hmm. then I guess there's some value there potentially. Yeah. The headhunting itself seems like the least important part of it, but yeah. all the rest seems plausible. Yeah. My other thing, there was an interview in the Wall Street Journal with Bill James and Billy Bean, and they discussed the the subject that often comes up about whether the work that's being done internally by teams is comparable to the work that's been done in the public sphere and continues to be done in the public sphere. So Brian Costa, who was doing the interview, asked Bill James if he worries about sabermetrics continuing to exist or flourish given that teams hire everyone who does anything interesting and james said i suspect that the best work will always be done in the public arena what's done in the public arena has a million eyes on it somebody sees what you've done wrong and they figure another way to do it and somebody else figures another way to do it i do see sometimes work being done by the red sox and think i wish the public could know about that but i think the best work will mostly be done in public view and then and i've heard him say this before he said this at the saber analytics conference a couple of years ago when i was there and billy bean agrees and he says it's like open source and it's wait wait, wait. i don't want to step all over this i don't know if you're going to get here but he agrees and then in the next answer to the next question <laughs> completely contradicts exactly yeah so he says he agrees he says it's like an open source thing 
Uh, it's self-correcting. Anytime you have an open source situation, you're probably going to have something better than three or four guys in a private situation. And then Costa asks a follow-up that's sort of the same as the previous question. Do you see work being done internally that is far beyond what people have seen publicly? And then Bean, who just said, I agree with Bill, and anytime you have open source, it's going to be better than three or four people in private. He then says yes to the question of, do you see work being done internally that is beyond what people have seen publicly? The great thing about what's gone on there is a transparency to the game. It's now a meritocracy. The best and brightest are now part of baseball teams. It's no longer an insider's game, etc. The people that we're hiring, we're competing with the Apples and Googles of the world. I just had an intern presentation a few weeks ago from the interns we have and what they were working on. It'll make your mind spin. So it seems as if he completely contradicts himself in the course of two answers there. Yeah, that's how I felt reading it. Okay. So is there an incentive for people who are inside to say, oh no, the stuff that's being done outside is even better? Or do you think it's modesty or secrecy or do they actually believe it or do you believe it? Oh, I think probably both things are true. Mm -hmm. Like I think there are cases where having a lot of different independent people working on something without a direct uh, profit motive and uh, a conversation that can take place over the course of many years and can be wrong at times because you know the stakes are much lower does lead you to certain things and then I think also having partly the best and the brightest idea but I think more than that it's just that there's a lot more people writing about sabermetric stuff than working in front offices that's true but there are a lot more people working full-time in front offices yeah than are working full-time writing baseball sabermetrics blogs right and I just I, I'm, I think there's something irreplaceable about having somebody who's spending 60 hours a week on this as a career as opposed to like I think I think Russell Carlton is just about the best in the world at this stuff and the worst part of my job is that I can't afford to make him do it 60 hours a week. Mm -hmm. uh, I can only afford to make him do it like three or four hours a week. Teams have versions of Russell that have 15 times as much time to spend on this and fewer distractions. Mm -hmm. So, And they might have a staff of you know eight Russell Carltons doing this. So, yeah. And there's also that you just have much more on the line. I mean, I guess... In one sense, every time you write something on the internet, many thousands of people could look at it and you don't want to look stupid, but there aren't really million dollar decisions riding on what you're doing. And so you might just run a regression or toss off some analysis. And if it's an interesting article, that's all people will really remember. And if there's an error somewhere, it might never be found. Or if it is found, it's not going to kill your company and cost your owner millions of dollars so there's less incentive to stay up all night working on something in that sense but there's also more eyes going over your work so if you produce some new stat and you put a leaderboard out there then you have many many people combing over that leaderboard and finding inconsistencies and things that seem like mistakes and so in that sense maybe there's an advantage in that you have a lot more quality testers than you would in a front office. 
Yeah, I but, I think I think both are true, and I think that the correct answer is, is that having both things is better than having one of them. And so maybe the question is, uh, you know, is more being done now than there was ten years ago because of the combination of these two things? And that I think would be undoubtedly yes. Yeah. Unless well, unless unless if you follow the the logic of just the very first response that Bill James gives then you might conclude that, in fact, all the people working for teams are less productive than they would be if they were in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess that's also a way of thinking about it. I probably don't think that's true. I think the smart people we know who are in front offices instead of working, uh, writing one piece a week for us, uh, are probably more productive in doing better work mm -hmm. than, than they would be in a very part-time capacity, with obviously with access to much less data. Yeah. Of course, you get lots of ideas from people who write things on the internet, and maybe it's just a concept that someone comes up with that they can't actually follow through on because they don't have the time or they don't have the data, but you can take that idea and implement it. So there's that. Yeah, when I was reporting I on news stuff, I would sometimes wonder like, what it was that I contributed to the world or that... I contributed to the community I was covering because it seemed to me that, like, for instance, when I was covering education, I knew much less about education than almost every one of my sources and most a lot of the people who were reading me, you know, like I obviously all the people who are teachers know more about teaching than I do. And all the people who are in administration knew more about administration than I did. And there were like hundreds and hundreds of experts out there in education. And, and then there were parents who knew their schools so much better than I could ever hope hope to know them and you know knew every leaky air conditioner and every flickering fluorescent light bulb and everything like that but and what i ultimately realized is that what i brought is i would sit at a desk and do this for 40 hours a week someone would pay me to sit there and do the work that nobody else was doing mm -hmm. because they have other jobs actually doing the thing or you know being whatever they were and that sounds somewhat self-effacing but it's actually true i mean that's more or less what reporters have. It's less expertise and more like, oh, your labor, good. Please, mm -hmm. please do this job that we consider important. Do it as well as you can. Be a competent, logical person. And so just, I, that's kind of what I'm getting at is that just having, like, even if they're equal skill level to people in the public sphere, I, I just don't think you can, I don't think you can replace 40 to 60 hours a week. Yeah. That's with, with a comments uh, section. Right. That's what I think separates us from your typical baseball fan. If there is something that separates us, it's that we have the time to read about baseball all day. And then if we see something interesting on a leaderboard, we can send a stat request and get some data to back up the observation. And then we can submit an interview request and talk to the person. And these are all things that it's hard to do if it's not your job to do it. So it's not necessarily that we are so much more brilliant and perceptive than your typical person who is reading our articles. It's just that we had the, the time to write them. Yeah. Okay. I think that's right. All right. What did you want to talk about? Uh, my GM thing is the, well, I have a few things too. We might just only go with these few things and then be done. The Phillies extended their manager. Yeah. Do you know the name of their manager? Pete Mackinnon. Good for you. All right. <laughs> so Pete Mackinnon was the interim after Ryan Sandberg stepped down earlier this year. 
And they went ahead and made him the permanent manager. They gave him a contract extension through 2016 with an option for 2017. And this uh, this happens a lot. It's always kind of odd when it happens, when you think about it, because like a lot of times the guy that you hired, the guy that you named interim, y- you chose not to make him manager <laughs> before. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't happen that often, right? It, it mean, happens sometimes, but yeah. What percentage of interim managers become permanent? It's usually just understood that it's a stopgap placeholder and you're just going to finish out the year and then interview people. That's but that, that, that was a resignation and it was early in the year so it was a, a longer audition than usual he had a he had an interim time before right he yeah replacing he, jerry naren and he did very well as i it was with the the reds and he was good they won a lot with him or let me see 2007 yeah so he's had two interim stints before 2005 was a brief one with the pirates 2007 though he went 41 and 39 with the Reds, or the Reds went 41 and 39 with him. And that was a team that went 72 and 90 overall. So under Jerry Naren, they were 20 games under 500. And under Mackinnon, they were two games over 500. And I remember there was some like higher Pete Mackinnon sentiment at the time, I think, just based on that. And I don't remember why they didn't, I guess, because they wanted a, a name guy like Dusty Baker. Yeah, so I'm not, I don't have a position on his hiring per se. He'll probably be good. What's odd is that the Phillies are about to hire a GM. Yeah. And typically the GM gets to hire the manager, or at least gets to make the decision about when to hire and fire a manager. And it's always kind of hard if you're a GM, you come in and you usually inherit a manager, and you don't want to fire a guy unless you have really good cause because there's a kind of a transition period and there's some risk about who you're going to get and it sucks to fire a guy and you know you have to pay unemployment benefits for I think a year just like 900 a month or something like that so you don't want to fire people right Mm -hmm. and so here's this perfect opportunity where you don't have to fire anybody and you get to give your GM a clean slate and pick his manager and they chose not to do that and that feels very odd to me and it feels like if I were interviewing to be the Phillies GM I'd be really mad about this and I'm sort of trying to figure out why 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 like even if even if you want to strongly insist on a guy at a certain point when you do hire the GM like especially if you don't know your GM you do at least want to be able to envision those two guys in the same room together and have an idea of how it's going to work. And right now, they don't even know who the GM is going to be. So how do they, like, how do, who knows how they're going to work together? There's no there's no relationship, not even a, an idea of how they'll work because you don't know who it is. You can't even visualize it. Mm-hmm. It feels super weird. It feels like maybe the, may, I don't know. I'm going to just go hot take here. Maybe the worst move that any team made this year, like logically speaking, just as far as process goes, is it seems to me, unless you're worried that Mackinnon is like going to leave and you just think mm-hmm. that he's irreplaceable, which maybe, I yeah, guess. That was my thought. Well, first of all, maybe they'll end up hiring their interim GM. That'd be a neat way to resolve it. But my only thought was that they think Mackinnon is so great that they are not willing to risk losing him and that they think that if they hire a new GM, the new GM will 
want someone other than Mackinnon. He'll want someone he's always had in his mind as his dream manager if he ever got a GM job. And he won't want Mackinnon because Mackinnon is just the guy who was there before and predated him. And he'll want to bring in his own pick. So if they think Mackinnon is just so incredible that it would be a, a mistake to let the GM make that choice, then that would be the only yeah, that's rationale n- I could that, come I up mean, with, and it's not good. <laughs> that's nuts. Like, if it was that you thought that some other team was about to hire Mackinnon, like the day the season ended, I could see that maybe. But the we, we can't trust the guy we're going to hire to be GM to hire a manager. Like, you've already acknowledged, you've already just did, You've you've accepted that you're gonna hire an idiot to be GM. Like oh you know you know the idiot we're gonna hire. Think about the idiot he's gonna hire. Yeah, <laughs> it feels very weird to me, it and is. I don't like it. It's pretty strange. All right, that's one. Two. Daniel Norris mm-hmm. was throwing a perfect game through five innings, and they pulled him. Mm-hmm. Did you see this? I didn't see it with my eyes, but I'm aware of it. it happened. And they pulled him because I think it was his first start back from the mm-hmm. DL. It oblique was thing. Oblique. Yeah, an oblique thing. They had him on like a 60, a pitch count of around 60. He threw 63. And then they pulled him. And I believe that one time we had a play index that was uh, looking at all the incomplete perfect games, like people being pulled from perfect games in history, and how many there were for like each number of out that you got and I believe someone can correct me if I'm wrong but I believe that there was no instance in history where a guy was pulled from a perfect game for like any reason other than he had to like he was hurt at that moment he was ejected at that moment he was there was a three-hour rain delay and he couldn't go back I don't think there was ever a case where a manager walked out and took the ball from a healthy pitcher in a in a perfect game really? no hitter no hitters yes yeah but, per, but perfect games no and for one thing it's almost impossible to have a high pitch count in a perfect game mm-hmm. but for another perfect games are different than no hitters so i was surprised by this and um i was sort of surprised by it too because it's brad osmus and brad osmus is did we get an update i mean he the reports were that he's going to get fired, right? Still very much in limbo, but certainly seems to be pointing toward he's not going to be back. So if ever there was a, a manager who was going to tell his bosses to shove it, uh, you might have thought it'd be him right there, or maybe the opposite. But anyway, he said after the game that there was never any doubt in his mind, there was no hesitation, that Norris wasn't surprised, that he knew, which I doubt, but uh-huh. that he knew and that he expected it. And uh, and I find it, I just find it surprising. I'm not saying good or bad. I find it surprising. I guess good in one sense. I mean, there's a level of discipline there that is admirable in a manager or in a front office. It's very tempting to let your plans change, you know, as something shiny comes in front of you. On the other hand, I would have left him in. It's so far away, though. I mean, yeah, but through so- five innings and he'd thrown 63 pitches. So if he was at the pitch count that they had decided on, and you're still four innings away. And at that point, I think if if you had gotten deeper into the game, because at five innings, your odds of actually throwing the thing are still so low. Yeah, but if he gives up a hit on the next batter, you can pull him then. You can you can pull him at any point. The odds of him going eight and two thirds and not completing it 
is also pretty low. Mm-hmm. And the odds are about 1.5% if you think that he's got a 300 on base percentage against him as a true talent level on the day he's throwing a perfect game. So about 1.5%. And yeah, I mean, they are low, but you can pull them and it's fun. It's fun to chase it. And now he'll never know. Now he goes through his entire life not knowing whether he'd have thrown that perfect game. And I don't know, maybe a perfect game isn't uh, enough of an achievement to do it. I still think perfect games are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. They're very tense, very exciting, very rare. It's not like he was coming back from a labrum surgery or Tommy John. Right. It's oblique and it's, it's oblique. the, it's end, the of end of a year. A season, not- they're out of it. Yeah. So worst case, he aggravates it and he recovers over the winter. I mean, worst, worst, worst case, because the idea is not so much that he was, I think the idea wasn't so much that he was going to strain his oblique as that he hadn't built up his strength yet. Mm-hmm. So he he wasn't, he wasn't stretched out enough. And so he gets fatigued and 100 to him maybe is like 140 to somebody else because he's not stretched out. Yeah. That's the worst case. But mm-hmm. Or maybe eh. he alters his mechanics or something to compensate for that and right, hurts his arm. Yeah. So that's the worst case. And I can see that. But also, what you know, I don't know. What are we doing out here? <laughs> Trying to win in 2016. Trying to throw perfect games, too. Yeah. Look, at the end of Daniel Norris's career, there's a pretty good chance that a perfect game is the highlight. That there's nothing in his career more memorable. In fact, there's like a 100% chance that nothing in his career, not 100, but there's like a 98, 99% chance that nothing in his career would top perfect game. And yeah, maybe he won't get there. Maybe he'll get knocked out in the 6th or the 7th or the 8th or the ninth. But it does feel like you're taking away. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if he got to choose and not he, you know, obviously if you go out and ask him, how do you feel? He's going to say, great, leave me in because that's what they all say all the time. But if he actually got to choose, even if 30 years from now version of him got to choose, don't you think that he would choose? Absolutely. Yes, I would. And of course he would. No doubt he would. The Tigers would say, well, we don't care. He's he's our asset and we don't mm-hmm. want to lose our asset. He's valuable to us because he gets paid nothing and we want to take advantage of that for the next few years. So that's why they did it. It's just that, I don't know, I guess in the uh, in the battle between asset and player trying to have a memorable life. I think I've grown to go with player trying to have a memorable life. Yeah, I, this to me is not close to like the Corey Kluber game where we talked about him being removed with a chance to strike out 20. This, it's just so remote. Five innings is, to me, it's barely even the embryo of a perfect game through five. So what if he had gone six? It's like, when does life begins at conception or whatever? It's like the perfect game begins at six innings for me. Okay. So if so he'd if, gone if six he'd... and he'd had the same pitch count, then I'd say, yeah. So if he goes, if you let him go out there for the sixth, though, and he gets to it, if he gets to six, now you're leaving him in. Like, you've acknowledged that now you're leaving him in at six, right? If he had the same... Pitch. Well, he if does he goes have out and he's, If he goes out and he throws another 15 pitches and he's at 80 through 6, then I still don't know if I would. Really? The whole, if you believe in pitch counts, which I don't know how much you should, if you just kind of have the attitude that it's all guesswork and the basic idea that you 
don't want to abuse pitcher's arms as good, but we don't really know what one specific start does, then I guess you can justify any one start just going after it. But eh, maybe I'm just tired of perfect games and no hitters. I wouldn't be if I were throwing well, one. How dare you put those two in the I same <laughs> category? How dare you? I know. Ben. It's like going, yeah, I guess I'm just tired of cycles and four home run games. <laughs> I know they're not the same. I guess I'm just tired of my favorite team winning the wild card or the World Series. <laughs> I guess I'm just tired of Pinkerton and Maladroit. I actually am. Yeah. Are you really? I've never liked Weezer. Oh, really? Yeah. None yeah, of it. You'd, you'd think I'd really like Weezer. I would. Like, based on you like my musical Smash taste. Mouth. <laughs> All signs point toward my liking Weezer, but I don't like Weezer. Not even a single song? There are single songs, but not a whole album. What's your first, uh, what would you say was your first uh, exposure to them? How old were you, and what was it? Yeah, I, I didn't listen to them at the time that those albums came out, so maybe that's why. Something about the guitar tone bothers me. Uh-huh. It's just like constant chugging. Interesting. I wonder if... I I think I don't know do do young I don't so you didn't answer my question but how old were you and what was your first Weezer album or Weezer experience? Don't really remember. Probably probably college was the first time I sat down and listened to a Weezer album intentionally. Yeah yeah that's pretty old to be exposed to Weezer. Uh, I don't think I would like them at that point either. Yeah. My girlfriend loves them and the early stuff, and she would listen in high school or whatever and drive around in the car with those albums on, and that seems to be the, the way that everyone came to love Weezer. I'm, I was asking partly because I wonder if young people like late model Weezer more. Like with Wes Anderson movies, for instance, mm-hmm. I think you, whatever, basically whatever Wes Anderson movie you see first or whatever Wes Anderson movie you see in that kind of age sweet spot you think is the best one, which is the only way that anybody has ever liked Darjeeling Limited, for instance. (laughs) And, like, I know people who think that, like, who swear that that stupid Jacques Cousteau one is, like... I love that one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But but it wasn't the first I saw. I I dispute the Wes Anderson How old were you? How old were you when it came out? It's, like, 2000... The Life Aquatic. 2005, I think? I was, like, 19 or something, or sweet. See, that's the sweet spot. (laughs) That could be, but but I had seen... I had seen Rushmore. I had seen I had seen the Royal Tenenbaums. In the theater? Not in the theater, no. And I would say that I liked Fantastic Mr. Fox and Grand Budapest Hotel as much as anything. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Last thing I wanted to talk about for banter <laughs> <laughs> is uh, there was a play tonight where uh, the Giants tagged out. Uh, Brandon Crawford tagged out Justin Upton trying to steal. The Padres challenged it. It looked from every angle like there was no tag. It looked convincing and clear and pretty much indisputable that there was no tag. The umpires went to the review, came back, and said, nope, he's out. And there's there's really, it's very hard to convince yourself in any of those that you saw anything that could reasonably have been that, except that John Miller speculated finally after probably his 40th viewing of his 15th angle that maybe the... Uh, lacing of Crawford, like the loose flapping lacing coming off of his glove caught him like on the ankle. (laughs) And I feel like this is not quite the same, but is in the same genre as the guy coming off the bag for one millionth of a second, but clearly never loses 
kind of control of the area around the bag, is not trying to go beyond it, hasn't even really slid past it, and yet is now out because of this frame-by-frame forensics that are possible uh, through replay. And so I am increasingly uncomfortable with that guy getting called out when he comes off the bag ever so slightly. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's good. I don't think that it's the spirit of, and maybe it is the spirit. It doesn't feel like it's the spirit of my game. I feel like there should there needs to be a rule change if we're going to have this. There needs to be a rule change that uh, defines possession of the bag slightly more liberally than it is, which is to say physical contact. And uh, I also feel like uh, there probably needs to be an exemption for loose hanging parts of one's equipment and uniform. So you're saying that the lacing is not an extension of the glove? I am saying that. Because otherwise, <laughs> what stops you from just having like a lace equivalent of like uh, dreadlocks coming off your glove in all directions? Probably, like, why not? Like, what if you had like, a, like if you had, no, if you had like, if your glove was like a Western suit, you know, like a country and Western suit with all the <laughs> like fringe, bills, like a, like a nudie design. Uh, yeah, like fringe. Exactly. Yeah. Fringe, not frills. And uh, you've just got these, <laughs> these laces flapping in all directions. Uh-huh. And uh, you get you get an extra three or four inches of extension <laughs> in all directions. Like I a, think an umpire like a, would stop you. Is, is what would why? stop you? What would stop? Why? Because I think it would be the opposing manager would complain and they'd About come out what? and make what you is, like what's distraction. What's well, if a pitcher were using it, it would certainly be called a distraction. Like when a but pitcher otherwise... has a weird colored glove or something hanging off him, someone complains and they take it away. But as it is, there are already these little laces hanging off of a glove. Yeah, but they have to so, be there. Those are necessary laces. You've got to tighten it. Just it, you could get a glove that has more laces, more more webbing. Design it so that there's laces all in every direction. <laughs> it's a smart idea. Does it look? Does it feel like a tag? I mean, this lace goes outside of the gravity of this glove. It is a loose thread. It is not part of the glove to me. It is a loose thread. You are not deliberately tagging a person with the lace of your glove. The glove is, when you tag somebody with the glove, it is saying, here is the ball. I'm putting the ball on you. It's in my glove, but I'm putting it on you. And if you don't hit them with the part of your glove that you are kind of intending to touch them with, you might as well just touch them. I mean, why not just say, oh, well, he got him with his, uh, he got him with his elbow. Elbows connected to the glove. Uh-huh. <laughs> Elbows connected to the wrist. Wrist is connected to the hand. Hands connected to the glove. Gloves connected to the baseball. Yeah, you're out. I was always kind of uncomfortable with just stretches, like the idea of stretching for a catch, because it seemed strange that you could be like instantly transmuted into someone with the ability to make a force out. Like your foot is still way back there on the base, but because you did a split and the ball is now touching your glove the quality of possession of the ball applies to your entire body at the instant that the ball enters your glove i always I thought that okay. was a weird yeah. thing i think i'm gonna join you on this it's strange does the possession of the ball like travel along your arm and then travel into your foot and into your toe and then it contacts the bag or are you just instantly now, le- like an alchemist just one second you cannot All make right, a ben. force out. Ben, Ben, Ben. I got one. <laughs> okay. Let's say that there's a ground ball 
the third baseman. The second baseman runs over to first, <laughs> stretches out, holds hands like, yeah, with the first baseman chain. who then stretches out. Can you do a human chain? Could it? You'd gain a little extra. I mean, the second baseman isn't doing anything else, so he there's no reason for him not to go try to do that. Mm-hmm. Does it count? Does does the blood course through two bodies to the base? I don't know if it does because there's like everything's got electromagnetic force that repels everything around it all the time, and so nothing is actually ever touching anything else. But, yeah. but that would also probably be true about the ball and the glove. I don't know. Very deep questions we're asking. Do you feel the same discomfort that I do with some of these replays that become almost existential? Like, when is the ball in the glove, for instance, on that stretch is now a that does. kind of a... That bothers me a little bit. The, the coming off the bag, I'm not sure if that bothers me, because I was always bothered by the opposite. I was bothered when someone would, obviously, come off the bag, and there would be a tag, and it wouldn't be called because he was there and his momentum carried him off the bag or something. I want I want the bag not, to mean something. I'm not saying that you can go past the bag. I'm not saying you can run through the bag like it's first base or anything like that. I'm saying you slide in, you stop, but just in the midst of this process, there's like a very, 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 very one frame, one fraction of a centimeter where a connection is just lost ever so slightly Mm -hmm. and i don't know maybe maybe that is enough you know if your power goes out for just that long well you do have to reset your alarm clock Mm -hmm. and you don't get to go ah just for a little bit but i don't know i mean it i just feel like 150 years of baseball where this was happening and everybody was fine with it happening you didn't know it was happening and all of a sudden, we've got microscopes, and we're like, whoa, look at that bacteria. Mm-hmm. Like, that's in us. Yeah. That is in our gut. That's gross. Mm-hmm. And you almost wish you didn't know about bacteria. Because it's you know? good for you. You need it. Some of it. Some of it is. A lot of it is. A lot of it is. And this bacteria, I know, th- I think to, wow, th- we're going to keep this analogy going. Surprised, <laughs> surprised me. It's true that, I mean, the, I, I think that there's been some complaining about for instance, the now that you have, we talked about this, now that you have the replay, fielders are being coached to keep the glove on the entire time mm-hmm. because you might get a frame in there. It happens a lot. You might get a frame in there where the guy comes off even though he's essentially in control of that region. I feel like if, and so uh, anyway, what I was saying is they're compl- now they're being coached to keep their glove on, which doesn't seem like a big deal, except that A, now fielders are, putting themselves in peril because they used to do that slap tag for a reason. It's so they don't get hurt. So they don't get their wrist jammed. So they don't get spiked. So they don't get tumbled into. So they don't get hurt. You don't want guys getting hurt. And this is causing, or at least fielders are saying it's going to cause guys to get hurt. And base runners are saying that now because of this, they're getting much harder tags that they're getting kind of beat on by these tags because the guys are trying to keep the glove on them. And so they don't like it. Nobody likes it. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that, look, if I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying you can run past the bag. I'm not saying that you can do like the, I don't know if this is actually a thing Jason Hayward does, but I think of this as a thing Jason Hayward does, where you slide in and then he just barely keeps his toe on the bag at the end. Like he goes all the way through and his toe just clings to the to the bag barely. I'm not saying you can do that and if you slide off the back, oh, it's okay, no big deal, we'll overlook it. You do have to 
to basically be a controlled slide into the bag. But I'm saying that if, for instance, why not make base rights like skyscraper rights in Manhattan? You get you get your little plot of land up to the moon. You know, like it goes straight up forever. And as long as you are, you've tagged the bag and a part of your body remains over that bag, you are still in possession of the bag. I don't mind that. It's like baseball probiotics. So, all right. So we're saying we're this is a, a resolution is passing that we think that the bag now stretches up to uh, FAA controlled airspace. <laughs> well, but you still but have to be. Only once you, you have to touch it. You have to essentially buy the plot of land by touching the bag. Yeah. At some point you have to touch the bag and you can't leave. Once you leave that zone, you have to reestablish ownership of it. Mm-hmm. But once you have ownership of the bag, if you go off ever so slightly, but your body remains over the bag within that square region, you're safe. Although I really like a good slide, a good slide around a tag, if you're in favor of that, like the one where the fielder is blocking the bag and it seems like there's no possible way that you can get by the glove and get your finger on the base, on the very edge of it. I like that. I'm very pro that and I wouldn't want to lose that. So if I like that, then do I also have to be for the opposite of that, which is that you have to actually be touching the base all the time. I don't see the clash. To me, this makes it, this encourages fancy sliding uh-huh. because it gives you a slight, slightly more margin for air as a slider. Okay. Then I like it. it. Okay, good. All right. All right. We'll talk about the other thing later. <laughs> all right. So we do still need some emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Facebook group, as always, facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And can rate and review and subscribe to the show on itunes which i am assured helps us in some nebulous way and you can support our sponsor which helps us in a a more tangible way by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code bp getting the discounted price of 30 dollars on a one-year subscription and we will be back tomorrow